Total Soccer Show and our latest foray into the listener questions mailbag. Today we're discussing minimum heights for goalkeepers. We're asking if Julian Alvarez deserves more of a glow up and we're finding out if Dean Smith is going to turn MLS on its head. Hopefully so. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me to chat through your questions, it's Alpha Papa Taylor Rockwell. Hello, Taylor. (laughs) Hello, my friend. How are you? I'm very good. I just thought of the phrase alpha papa and i thought i'd apply it to you because you're an alpha papa is that okay alpha papa i I appreciate that although i believe you and graham are both more long-standing in the parental department so i feel like you all maybe get that title ahead of me uh we're beta papas (laughs) i don't like this i'm not not sure i do either Uh, Joe Lowry joining us there, not liking it. How are you, Joe? I I was better before. I'm getting better now. I think the further we get away from uh, AP, the happier I'm going to be. Ryan, it is good to be here. How are you? It is indeed. It's also good to have... Spoken like a beta papa is all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Beta papa more like. Graham Ruffin, how are you? I am very well, Ryan. The nonsense has started early on this show. It must be a listener questions episode. It's been a while since we we did a a listener questions episode. This is the sort of nonsense intros that come with these episodes. Did I I mishear something or did Taylor go, sounds like Beta Papa more like? And then Ryan went, sounds like Beta Papa more like. Is that not what just happened? Is that Taylor said that and then Ryan repeated the exact same thing? I believe I said Theta Papa, which is even oh. further down the alphabet, Joe. Wow, good for you knowing your Greek was... letters. Woohoo, man, this guy's ready for AAK Athens, whatever that, that team is. I love it. I, I know mean. nothing about any of, like, Alpha Papa, I thought you were talking about the, the Alan Partridge film, but, you know, I'm being educated on this show today. Yeah, maybe I was. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, good anyway. film. It is. Very good. Uh, As is Alan Partridge. Let's talk more about listener questions. We've got plenty coming up on this show. But before we get there, patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show. For all our bonus content, if you'd like to support Total Soccer Show, that is the very best way to do so. And we appreciate it. There's bonus episodes on there. There's videos on there. And of course, access to our Discord. It's like a Twitter slash X, but much, much cooler. Come and join us in there, patreon.com slash Show. We're also doing a bonus listener question on there from Brett Miller, uh, which is about Emma Hayes and the USWNT coming up very soon on the Patreon Discord thing. Support us there. Thank you very much. Spoken like a non-boomer there. <laughs> Didn't know how to finish that sentence, if I'm honest, Graham. Let's move on to the listener questions. Right, you are questions. hosting this episode, sir. <laughs> I'm saying words. I don't know if I'm doing it with the right timing or the correct words, Taylor, but uh, we're doing something here. I we're all together. You. We're all having a lovely time. That's what's important. Um, ben Sundstrom has been in touch with his question, uh, who says, why do the best USMNT players tend to pool together in the same league at the same time? such as the Bundesliga, then the Premier League, and now, evidently, Serie A. Uh, Joe Lowry, I don't know if I have an intelligent answer to this, or indeed intelligent answer to anything in life, generally speaking, but more specifically this question. Is it just the, like trends and logistics, that kind of thing? I think if there is an answer, that's the answer, and there's a, there's a little bit more digging I'll do down that path. I Ben, I, I like where this question is coming from. I just don't think I agree. Like, I don't think all the best USMNT players at this current moment are pooling in Syria. I mean, there, there are four very good USMNT players there, but there's also a lot of good USMNT players elsewhere, right? Balogun's not there. Pepe's not there. Tyler Adams isn't there. Chris Richards and Jedi Robinson. Like, you can run through the list. Yeah, there's there's almost half of a starting lineup in Syria, and that's not nothing, but you can say the same about the Premier League, and there are a bunch of US players in the Bundesliga as well. So I don't think we're really seeing that. I, I did some very basic arithmetic. Um, hold your applause. Four Americans in Syria, two in La Liga, a handful in the Bundesliga, a handful in the Premier League. Like there just isn't this super high concentration of elite players outside of four, which to me doesn't feel like enough to say that all the best USMD players are pooling together. Now, Joe, what, what I will more, say, would you, yeah, would you ahead, be more comfortable? agreeing with the statement that the, the the current of US players is stronger towards Serie A now than it has been in recent times rather yes. than they're pulling towards the, the, they're all pulled in Serie A. I think you're that's a fair point that is yeah, happening but I the think current is surely stronger I think that's a fair point I guess which does get to some of what Ben is is maybe trying to get to here as well I don't know it just it, I don't think the framing at least of this really fits with reality right now but Graham, you're right. Like there are currents that do seem to take U.S. players to certain places more times and more frequently 
at some moments rather than others, right? So there was definitely a Bundesliga push for a while, right? I think that is very, very real. Christian Pulisic going to Dortmund, Weston McKennie going to Schalke, Tyler Adams to Leipzig, Giorena going to Dortmund. Like, that that was a real trend. You toss in Haji Wright, and you toss in Matthew Hoppe, the beach soccer legend himself, right? Like, th- there were probably a handful of reasons for that trend at that time. Pulisic going and having success at Dortmund first is got to be a really big part of that. And you toss in past precedent with... Claudio Reyna and Winalda and some others, like Bundesliga teams were very aware of the American market. And it also seems to me that they were more open to playing young players. Like Jesse Marsh just come out and talked about how the Bundesliga seems to be more willing culturally to give chances to young players and to develop them more than, say, the Premier League. Marsh, I don't, I don't think, said that, but that's the conclusion I'm making. The Premier League, it's a, it's a different story to get into Premier League minutes because it's the best league in the world right now. I think there is some of that Bundesliga element happening with Syria right now. And Ryan, I'm curious about your perspective because I know you've you've done stuff with Syria. I don't believe it's like this league directive that influences clubs to go out and say like, oh, everybody needs to have an American. Like that's even if even if these leagues are are encouraging their clubs to sign players, the clubs do what they want and they are going to do what they want. But Syria does seem to have done something, or at least Juventus and Milan have done something to go out there and get players, even if I don't think I'd classify it as a whole pool. I wouldn't say necessarily it's a directive, Joe, but there are machinations going on. Milan are American-owned. Yeah. I think about half the teams in Serie A sure. now have at least part American ownership. So there is an impetus from the uh, ownership to have more American talent. And I don't think it's any coincidence that basically this season we've got four of the best USMNT players ending up yeah. at two of the biggest teams. There's American money in Italian football right now between, as yep. you say, Ryan, AC Milan. I think Fiorentina are owned by uh, American um, an American businessman. Even things like CBS investing money into their broadcasting of the league, Serie A opening up a US office. So I'm not saying clubs are signing Americans purely because their owners are American, but I, I think it probably helps open eyes to the best American talent. Yeah, I, and I think continuing that, Graham, you've talked about this before, about how like USMNT supporters are unique in that they care the most about the US men's national yeah. team than they do a lot of other teams or their club teams. And I do think uh, clubs that are owned by Americans, but also just clubs broadly speaking, might see that and see the impact that has in terms of eyes, in terms of jersey sales, in terms of media rights and whatnot. And I do think there is, at least in the past, historically, I think there was a little bit of a we can tap into the American market by bringing in a player. It's not just bringing them in for novelty's sake, the way I think some teams did with, say, Chinese players in the early 2000s. It feels much more like we're bringing in somebody who we expect to be able to play or contribute at least somewhat significantly, but also that does give us an entry point into the American market and get more eyes on the team. And then I think as that happens and is successful, let's say, in the Bundesliga or with Fulham, I think then you have proof of concept and it becomes easier for other clubs to go out and sign an American. I I do still buy into the idea that there is a stigma and has long been a stigma about Americans that do they really play? Do you know how to play? Do you understand this sport? Do you understand? Like, like I think there is among certain purists, an idea that Americans are not as good at soccer or don't come up with soccer. We call it soccer. That's a problem. So I, I think though, once you see one American doing it, it becomes easier for other Americans to kind of make that jump. And I think with that then comes a buildup of connections, former managers, agents, teammates, what have you, so that then you have a larger network where you can make a move or you can follow a manager that you liked to a new club. And I think mm-hmm. that also kind of opens some doors along the way. Yeah, and you see it with other nationalities as well. If one club signs mm-hmm. a player from a uh, how to word it, non-traditional soccer country and then that player does well or, or shows potential, then it's human nature to think there must be more like him or her mm-hmm. in that country. So in Scotland, we had this with Japanese players. Ange Postacoglu came from the J-League to Celtic. He knew which players to, to target back in Japan. He took Kyogo with him and Rio Hatate, who were both excellent. Then all of a sudden, Hearts signed a Japanese player and Motherwell signed a Japanese player where there hadn't been a Japanese player. I think Nakamura had, was the last one. We'd gone about 12 years Without a Japanese player in Scotland, all of a sudden there were four or five spread across three clubs. And you see it with Australians in Scotland as well. Half the Australian squad at the World Cup, the Men's World Cup, play in Scotland. And there are loads of Scots in Australia. And we've seen it with, this is a little bit of a broader example, but MLS clubs going and signing South American youngsters after, you know, Miguel Almiron was was such a success and Joseph Martinez. So it washed up stars on huge wages in Turkey. That seems to be a bit of a trend. Um, it seems like it's just human nature. You get one success story, people will look for other success stories. 
For those of you keeping track at home, it took Graham fewer than 10 minutes to talk about Scotland and Big Ange. Yeah, of course. Uh, that might be a record in a <laughs> non-Big Ange Scotland episode. Well done, Graham. Well done. A nice flashback to the cum dog as well, Graham, speaking about the Australians in Scotland too, right? Yeah, he's an Indian now. He gets around the cum dog. And I'm uncomfortable again. Okay, uh, let's park that one there. Ben, thank you very much for that question indeed. We go now to Kevin Tolley, and also a question that was asked by Meredith Greer, Matt Adler, and a few others. Basically, Taylor, the question is about Chris Richards mm-hmm. and his role at Crystal Palace. Uh, has he been doing well? The uh, positional switch between defence and midfield, has that been going? What do we think about his uh, development in general? New Year's resolution, I think I tend to lead with the negatives. So I'm going to start with the positives because there was one slight negative that kept sort of coming back home to me, and I'm wondering where Joe is on this one. First of all, it is so very exciting that he is playing. That alone, that he is getting minutes, that he is getting starts, but then that he is playing in a difficult position with a lot of eyes on him. Uh, Watching him on the ball, he so routinely has somebody pressuring him immediately uh, that if he coughs it up, if he gives it away, if he has an errant pass, it's going to lead to, at the very least, a very good opportunity for the opposition. And thus far, I, I don't want to say any, but I don't think I saw any op- moments where he just gives the ball away cheaply. It is usually a conservative pass back or lateral. Sometimes it is a riskier pass out wide. Very rarely is it a turn and progress the ball forward sort of thing for Richards. But it's still moments where he comes under extreme pressure and processes that really quickly, plays it really quickly, and does a good job of of sort of evading that the intensity of that press. Defensively, I think he's done a really good job of sort of holding his zone. When I see him steps, he steps aggressively. He uses the physicality he has. He does not have the range of, say, Tyler Adams, nor does he have, to my mind at least, the engine of Tyler Adams. And that is sort of the limitation I see when it comes from what he's doing with Crystal Palace, translating that to the USMNT, Joe, I I, I don't know how else to phrase this. There's probably a better way, but it's sort of like he is a much, much better Jackson Ewell or Aiden Morris in my mind, that he's being asked to do very conservative things to kind of stay home. He's not covering a ton of ground. He's not putting in rangy tackles and carrying it forward. He's doing a sort of conservative defensive midfield job, but simultaneously that is what's being asked of him, and he's doing it pretty excellently so far. So it's, it's very positive that he's playing. I'm just really interested to see how that translates to the USMNT. My suspicion is that it translates in him continuing to play center back. Yep, I, that's exactly where I thought you were going, Taylor, and that's exactly where I leave this whole Chris Richards at, at the number six spot situation. I, I agree with your opening take. Like it's it's been fun to see Chris Richards play because he just hasn't been playing that move from Bayern to Crystal Palace, I thought had a ton of potential. Mm-hmm. He's just been stuck behind two very, very good center backs for Crystal Palace. And it, honestly, through no fault of his own, right? That's fine. That happens sometimes. Sometimes transfers, most of the time, transfers don't work out. And this one really hasn't worked out for Chris Richards. So it's been just fun to see him get to play soccer because I think he's a really good soccer player. And you see some of what he's good at translate to the sixth spot, which is he's not a Tyler Adams level Number six, because nobody does what Tyler Adams does at his level. Basically, right? Adams has deficiencies that keep him from being a starting defensive midfielder for Manchester City, but he is elite at covering ground. He is elite at pressuring the ball when he's healthy. Like Adams is um, among the best of the absolute best at doing those things. Richards isn't that, but he's still a crazy good athlete. And you see it like this guy played basketball in Alabama. Like this, this guy's the, the real deal athletically. And he's also a really smart cerebral soccer player. You see that in some of the positioning stuff mm-hmm. that he's adapted to a 360 degree role so quickly and has not embarrassed himself in that role as a 23 year old who, as far as I'm aware, has never really done this job in his career. Like that, that stuff is impressive. You see his versatility, you see his mobility and ability to cover Yes, not Tyler Adams' amount of ground, but still to cover ground, to win balls in the air. That's a huge asset for Crystal Palace in that sixth spot. He is a good ball winner in that role. Uh, The reason why I don't think he has a future as a number six, and and I would love to be proved wrong on this, by the way, because this would be a a cool and kind of interesting development to chronicle, is that he just doesn't look really comfortable turning with his back to goal, right? He, He does end up playing a lot of safe passes, which is fine, but he doesn't look capable of receiving the ball on the half turn or or straight up with with his back to goal, like I said, and turning out of pressure or turning to play forward. It looks clunky. And that makes sense, right? He's 23. He's not done this job before. This is still new. It's the highest level you could possibly be playing at. And yeah, there are going to be kinks, but I am not convinced that those things are going to get ironed out of his game. I think he will always sort of be a defensive plus and, and probably real attacking minus at that number six spot. 
I, I don't know that there's a lot more to come, but I'm curious, right? Like maybe by March, mm-hmm. suddenly things look different because he's got, uh, trying to do math, 1,200 minutes in that role instead of 700 or whatever it is, right? So maybe there is something here, but for me, based off of where things stand right now, overall good that he's playing. It's been fun to see. I think he's done okay at that spot and that's impressive in its own right. But I don't think this is the future for him at the club level or at the international level. Joe, you called it a 360-degree roll. That may not be a new phrase, but that is new to me. And it is a perfect summary of what I was trying to say. You said it very well there. Just the idea that he has to see everything instead of seeing just what's in front of him as a defender or a left back only having to focus on one side of the field. That is very well said, my friend. Yeah, thank you. Graham, I'm I'm curious. I I appreciate that, Taylor. Graham, I'm curious because I know you've watched Palace a number of times. Anything else on Richards that, that stood out to you or did we catch most of it? No, I think you caught most of it. I, I watched a couple of Palace games over the Christmas period. I was writing a piece for Fort Mob on Hodgson and how they were doing. And so Richards was a, was a player that I was keeping a close eye on. And I do have sort of mixed thoughts on him in this position. So there are moments where positionally, as you referenced, Joe, with his positional sense, he's very good. He obviously has those defensive instincts and he's mobile. And there was a game against West Ham where the way he played against Jared Bowen, I thought was really intelligent, where he actually gave him a little bit of space and then he would engage when he needed to. But in the same game, he loses Mohamed Kudush for a goal. So yeah. even in that performance, th- there were two sides to his to his game. And that and was that the first a- one as well. That was the first, yeah. the first start that he had that's in that right. number six role. Yeah. yeah, so that's kind of been a common thing for him. I, I watched him against Chelsea. I thought, he- I thought he struggled a little bit in that game where Chelsea put technical ball players around him and it sort of felt like he was played around and 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 that would be the case for most players against Chelsea with the talent that they have and and Palace were very open in terms of their midfield structure and that didn't help him so it wasn't purely on him but I think a truly world-class number six would be maybe a bit more disruptive and a bit more comfortable in that situation I certainly agree the biggest detraction uh, criticism I've got of him in that position is I I just don't think he has that natural ability in tight spaces that you would expect of a world-class number six. It doesn't feel like he's got it in his locker to take a pass on the half turn and then move into space. Haven't seen that sort of thing from him. So he's been fine. Like, it's good to know from a a US perspective that he can play there, that if the situation requires it, you can put Chris Richards as the number six and he's not going to be a disaster in there. But if we're looking for players to progress that team before 2026, to really take the US to the next level... I'm not sure Richards is the number six is, is the answer. He kind of looks like a centre-back playing in that position, albeit doing it fairly adequately. All right, fair enough. Thank you very much, Kevin, for your question. We take a break now. When we come back, we're talking Yulin Alvarez, we're talking Dean Smith, and much more back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. 
And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way, because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Richard Rolson has been back in touch. Hello, Richard. Uh, Richard asks, would Julian Alvarez get more discussion as the best young up-and-coming player, as a best a young up-and-coming player, if he played in La Liga? Does he get lost in the wealth of talent at Manchester City? Now, Graham, I'd argue mm. that he'd get more discussion in this category mm. at any club except yeah that was that that's my answer as well it could be La Liga it could be another Premier League club if he was anywhere besides Manchester City we'd probably there'd be more discussion more discussion around him as one of the best young up-and-coming players in the world there is still a bit of discussion of course around him in that in that sense we've spoken about him plenty times on the on the show this season of course he won the World Cup with Argentina last season so it's not like he's completely flying under the radar but um an interesting kind of sliding door moments for Julian Alvarez is the fact that he was offered to Manchester United when, when Ralph Ranić was in charge and Ranić wanted to, to sign him. I read this in a, an Athletic article, but the Glazers had put a freeze on any signings in that January transfer window and um, obviously Manchester United might have engulfed Alvarez like they do most signings, but if you put Man City Julian Alvarez in that team, I think he's spoken about as the face of Manchester United's kind of next generation I think it's City just gets lost in the shadow of Erling Haaland and it's a big shadow considering how Mm. big he is and how he's arguably the best player in the world right now but I'm working on this like theory with Manchester City where Haaland is in a football sense an exception for Pep Guardiola in the way that he plays but also as a personality because City don't normally have big personalities the big personality in that at that club is Pep Guardiola And then it's kind of a lot of system players below him, or it was for a number of years. So we probably value personality more than we should in assessing the quality of of, of players. And you you can see that in how City players rarely get anywhere near Ballon d'Or voting, despite being a dominant force for years. Like They've won the Premier League four times in the last five years. And Haaland, it feels like, is the first player that they've had in the kind of Abu Dhabi era, certainly the Pep era, who's close to that reckoning of being one of one of the best players in the world who might potentially win a win a Ballon d'Or. So I'd argue that Alvarez in a football sense and also a, a personality sense is a more orthodox City player. And orthodox City players sometimes get overlooked as excellent as they are. So it's kind of a half-baked theory there with Manchester City, but I think there's, there's something in it. They're, they almost kind of amalgamate into this Manchester City blob. And I think Julian Alvarez is an important part of that blob, but he is part of the blob. Yeah, nicely put. Taylor, it is wild that if you look at like his honour roll on on his Wikipedia page, he's won everything. Mm. He's 23 years old. He won everything in Argentina. He got the Copa Libertadores with River Plate. Uh, obviously, treble with Manchester City, World Cup. Like, it's kind of wild that he's not uh, on a higher pedestal than he is currently. It, it is, but it's not, because it's exactly what Graham said. It's having Erling Holland ahead of him. He has a gigantic shadow. I mean, even like the fantasy conversation we had earlier in the season when Graham had both of them starting, and I was sort of like, hey, you're starting the backup? And like, it makes sense, because he scores goals and is very good. It just, it feels like he is a backup, even though at many other clubs, he would be the man, the goal scorer, the player that a lot of different teams, cough, cough, Man United, cough, cough, Arsenal, might actually mm. need. Indeed. Joe, anything to add on Julian Alvarez? Where where else maybe would we see him best placed, even in the Premier League, perhaps? I mean, yeah. lots of Premier League teams would like a decent player of his position. Graham absolutely nailed the initial explanation. Graham, I, I didn't give you credit initially just because other people were talking, but that was really, really well said and pretty much exactly what I had in my notes, but more articulate. I mean, I think the reality is basically anybody could use Julian Alvarez because he's still like this. I don't think he's a positionless wonder because I think he's probably at his best as a number nine. But he's filled in for Kevin De Bruyne, not doing exactly Kevin De Bruyne things. He doesn't play that outswinging ball from the half space in the same way. But, like, you go through and look at his numbers and just watch the tape, right? 
his playmaking ability is nearly as good as his goal scoring. He's got 10 goals between the Premier League and the Champions League, and, and the playmaking numbers are fantastic as well. So I think you could run down the list. I, I think of him just because maybe Arsenal are the closest stylistic team in the Premier League to Manchester City, but you could toss him in either half space or at the number nine role for Arsenal. Like Tottenham would absolutely love to get their hands on another quality player. Oh, what I think is going to happen, though. I can see that. It's not yeah. going to happen, but hey, Alvarez under Postcoglu, I would love that. It's Well, yeah, shocker. It's not going to happen, <laughs> but but the, the thing that I think is going to happen for Julian Alvarez and that will eventually get him the notoriety that he deserves is that he's just going to wait Erling Holland out, and he's going to be the guy at Manchester City in two or three seasons, whatever happens, and he's going to be the Kevin De Bruyne or the Bernardo Silva. He's going to be in that supporting cast, which is a very, very good cast, as Graham said, and then eventually Holland will go do something else, like build computer chips because he has expert knowledge on that subject. Yeah. And then it's going to be Julian Alvarez being the guy for Manchester City. That, I think, would be the smart move. If, if I know he would cost a lot, and Barcelona don't really have much money right now, but if they, somehow they could pull a lever and get Julian Alvarez, I feel like that would be a good fit, and Alvarez would be Where'd the you face put him? of one of the... Where would you put him? In, him? In at, the, at the nine? Well, yeah, at the nine. I'm, I'm sort okay. of... Uh, assuming that Lewandowski sure. at some point is going to get moved on sure. potentially to Saudi Arabia. So that would need to happen. Yes, Lewandowski out, Alvarez in. I don't know if Barcelona can make that happen, but if they can, they should look into it. Just a few more flights to Frisco and you're, you're probably yeah. in good shape. Yeah. <laughs> All they need is the league to make up a few more rules for them to keep plotting on and they'll make it happen, Graham. I'm quite sure about that. Yeah, very good. Uh, by the way, uh, Joe, that waiting it out thing, are we, can we call that doing a Foden perhaps? Yeah. Is that fair? It like, just... he was a player who could have gone many other clubs, but waited it out and has got his dues in the end. At City. Yeah, it's it's like the one Man City player every four years that sort of sticks around long enough to become the guy, except yeah. Alvarez is better than Foden. But yes, I, I think we can call that the Foden, Ryan. I like it. Alvarez is better than processing, processing. Okay, all right, <laughs> got that one. Uh, thank you very much, Richard, for that question. We go now to Joel Miller who says, what will Dean Smith bring to Charlotte? And why is he likely to be any more successful excuse me, than he was at Leicester, Norwich, and Aston Villa? So uh, Carolina does like coaches called Dean Smith. Hey, basketball uh, reference. Hey, nice. hey, I know things. Um, he is Charlotte's third coach in their third season. Graham's doing the gone over my head gesture there. It didn't <laughs> until I had to Google him when people said that to me, Graham. Um, he's got links to the Carolinas, though, does Dean Smith. His son, Jamie, played uh, at NC State and now plays at Greenville Triumph, yeah, in USL League One. And also, he owns a Other American in- sports seem to do funny things to Joe. He makes funny noises when other teams are... I'm not entirely sure what's going on. Are you okay, Joe? <laughs> I think that was just Joe showing his USL League One credentials. It, yeah, it was. It was. That was a soccer thing that made me do that sound. Oh, right, yeah, okay. <laughs> Sometimes sports thing. make me make sounds. I think that's... Tacoma Defiance! <laughs> like... <laughs> 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 oh dear uh, yeah so Dean Smith already ties to the Carolinas he, he owns a home in Myrtle Beach Taylor down in Dirty Myrtle Dean Smith already is this, the question? That is this what we're doing now he owned it before he owned it before because his son oh that here. doesn't make me feel good about this appointment if it's like <laughs> I already own a home there I'll well I've go got a holiday house there so <laughs> yeah. why not go out and play there for a while oh, coach there for a while um, obviously um, obviously Joey's had success at Aston Villa got them promoted took over when they were 15th in the championship Less success in the more recent English jobs, you could say, yeah. with and Leicester, but um, said to have had big influence <laughs> on players like Grealish, on uh, Ollie Watkins. People are saying, on. yeah, people are saying. John McGinn, John McGinn owes it all to Dean Smith, right? Yeah. Right. right, okay, yeah. let's yeah. let's move off of this. Oh, train right. of are you a writer for Charlotte FC? Because right. that's sort of the thing they claimed. <laughs> Ryan's been there, done that, Taylor, at this point. Um, so the, the answer to why Dean Smith is any more likely to be successful in Charlotte than his past stops is that he's not, right? Like... I think he could do well in Charlotte and they could get better. Strong disagree, Joe. Strong disagree because you can't be relegated in Major League Soccer. So at the very least, he's going to do better than that. Well played, Taylor. I like that. Um, So it's a a fine, I think, respectable hire for Charlotte FC. I I said that on some MLS show, I think, at the time with Taylor, you, and and Goss. Like, I'll say it again now. I think it's a, a... a reasonable move. He's managed Brentford, Aston Villa, Norwich, Leicester, other clubs as well. He's been both promoted and relegated to the Premier League. Taylor thinks I'm building to something. I'm not. Really. No, I like, don't. It's just hilarious to me that like all I can picture is the Charlotte front office being like, do we want to make a splashy signing? Do we want to make a big name? It's like, no, we uh, reasonable. Reasonable is fine. We want a reasonable appointment. Like you are, you are building the argument for a, he is a 
okay appointment said with some trepidation, which is about where I am. So I'm just laughing at how perfectly you're nailing this. Yeah, even down to the name. (laughs) We've got a guy. What's his name? Dean Smith, two of the most common names in England. That's our guy. That's him. It just, it would be great if Charlotte would give him a reasonable squad to work with. Like that is, that's the key for Dean Smith. So tactically, here's a little nuts and bolts on, on how Dean Smith plays. He's used a lot of 4-2-3-1, generally leans more towards transition than possession, although I think that's largely based on the squads that he's had. He's come out and said, like, if I had the same players as Pep or Klopp, like, maybe something would be different, but he doesn't, and he won't in Charlotte either, who are operating at a a much lower talent level right now, thanks to Zoran Cronetta and, and other folks in that front office, than other top teams in the Eastern Conference or in the West or whatever it is, right? So Villa, under him, to look specifically at that team, they like to play narrow, they like to play through the middle, not quite Red Bull style in terms of their transition stuff. Like they're not trying to go out there and play long ball after long ball, but they do like to go forward quickly. So he seems like to me, Dean Smith, more of a tactical pragmatist than an idealist. And he kind of said as much to Charlie Bohm, who had a good piece from MLSsoccer.com about Dean Smith and that hire and all that stuff. Here's a quote from that piece. Uh, quote, I can sit here and say my playing philosophy is the same as Pep Guardiola's or Jurgen Klopp's, but we haven't got their players. Talking about Charlotte, and he's right. He said then, so my playing style has always been, if we lose the ball, win the ball back quickly and go and score as quickly as we can. And if we can't, then we retain possession and find different ways to score. And that will continue through all the clubs. Like he just came out and basically laid out a very modest and respectable playing philosophy that seems to make sense for the middling to below average group of players that Charlotte FC generally has. The thing that will define Dean Smith's tenure in Charlotte, though, is not Dean Smith. It is absolutely yep. Zoran Cronetta and the players that he gives him. That is how soccer works. If Pep Guardiola had bad players, Pep Guardiola would not be Pep Guardiola. If Pep Guardiola has good players, he is absolutely the person he is today, right? Coaches matter, but they matter far less than the overall talent level that you have. And when Charlotte are rocking up to the to the function with Camille Josviak on one wing and Kerwin Vargas on the other, and like a couple of over 30s in midfield, it just, it's its not going to matter. I'm probably being a little harsh on the squad, but if he gets a good group of players to work with, or at least a slightly better group than Latanzio had last year, then yeah, Dean Smith might have more success than he had when he got relegated recently. If not, then I think things are going to look the same. I think I'm going to go negative, positive, negative here. I'm going to start with, I don't think he helps himself with some of those quotes. Like, we try to win the ball back and score. And I think he has another one of, I believe personally that if you can get better players, it makes the team better overall. Like break a new ground here. Is that true? Thank you for this innovative (laughs) concept. And I understand where he's coming from, but there's a lot of sort of that to his quotations that I think had me feeling slightly dubious. I think him moving to major league soccer makes a ton of sense because Joe, I think you nailed it. I think he's, he is a pragmatic manager. And I think we see that with Aston Villa where he gets them out of the championship. He gets them promoted. He gets them stabilized. They're 11th, I think in his first season there, but there is that point where it feels like then they have to move on. Things regress. They're not playing well. He gets sacked. Uh, It sounds like he didn't expect that, but kind of expected it. The players were sort of surprised by it, but it did feel like the right move. And obviously here we are, although Steven Gerrard is kind of in between and that's a harder sell to make. But but it does feel like then you have him going to Norwich, who are in a bit of a crisis, Leicester, who are in much more of a crisis when he takes yeah. over, and it's two clubs where it's just a very unstable situation, and I think it's kind of unfair to judge him by those clubs. I think the Villa one is a fairer uh, thing to, to kind of focus in on, and so to me, moving to Major League Soccer where I think pragmatism is oftentimes rewarded and then allows him to experiment a bit more, but also to figure things out over the course of the regular season because you don't have relegation and you have expanded playoffs. I I think it it suits him well and I think could lead to successes. It just then, and Joe, this is where I, I am dead in agreement with you, it comes down to what Charlotte do as a front office and what they sort of surround him with and maybe even more importantly, how patient they're willing to be. Because it seems to me like Charlotte are a club that will sack the manager if it doesn't seem like things are going the way they want them to. And Dean Smith, I think, needs a little bit of time. He needs a preseason. He needs time to kind of figure the players out. And if they don't give him that, if there's pressure on him pretty quickly, if they don't win in like like three of their first five or whatever it may be, I, I don't know how well that's going to work out for him long term. So I think if he's the, given the a throw season, a drink on him, definitely Taylor. <laughs> exactly. See, this is what, it's just a volatile situation, and I think it's more. My hesitation with the appointment is much more about uh, Carolina than it is about anything or Charlotte, excuse me. Although Carolina broadly, but Charlotte in particular, uh, than it is anything about Dean Smith necessarily. 
Is that the two the two extremes of American sports getting a drink thrown on you? You've either you've, you've either won the Super Bowl or you're bottom of the NFL. It's like the two ends of the spectrum there. Or you're uh, or you're playing at the Azteca, but yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, much it. yeah. that's true. Um, I I think Dean Smith could be a a good a very good mm-hmm. appointment for, for Charlotte. Um, he has made some as you laid out, Taylor. He's made some questionable career decisions post Aston Villa. I don't think Leicester or Norwich City were good clubs to go into. At the, at the time that he went into them. But he was getting Premier League jobs last season. And that doesn't happen very often in MLS where a manager of that standing... I'm not saying, you know, MLS clubs should be bending over backwards to get any kind of English manager in. Um, but we have moved on from the kind of the Stevie Nicol era where just being British was enough to get you an MLS job. Dean Smith has pedigree. He has a decent resume. And if you ask Aston <laughs> now, Villa fans... Now you have to be British and friends with David Beckham. That's the big <laughs> distinction. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone's friends with David Beckham, so that that's quite a wide net, a big pool. But Love the Queen. Um, he wants that knighthood, Graham. <laughs> he'll queue for that knighthood, is what he'll do, <laughs> David Beckham. Um, I, I think in, Aston Villa fans adored him. They, they still really hold Dean Smith in high esteem. And I agree with Joe. He is a pragmatist, but he, he is... He leans on the attacking side of pragmatism. Aston Villa in the championship and even that first season back in the Premier League, they're a fairly entertaining team to watch. Not in the kind of Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp scale of things, but they like to take risks. Um, Jack Grealish, you mentioned him at the, the top of the question, Ryan. Dean Smith played a big role in turning Jack Grealish into the player that he is today. He set up his team to overload on one side or on central midfield, create space for Jack Grealish, create those one-on-ones, open up the channel, and it was a perfect he was a perfect fit for Dean Smith's kind of high-risk type of type of football. Um, and he did that for a number of players who are still in either, obviously Jack Grealish is at Man City, but John McGinn, Ollie Watkins, they're still playing at a high level for, for Aston Villa, and I don't think they are where they are right now without Dean Smith. So, I, I think um, some of his quotes... Don't paint him, paint him in a particularly positive light, but he's not—he's not a dinosaur. You know, he was—he was Brentford man—he was Brentford manager and actually put in place a lot of the the good stuff that still sustains them to this day. So that is maybe the hope for for Charlotte is not only are they successful under his management, but he puts in place some things along with the sporting director that last, um, I guess, longer than him as manager. Yeah, it certainly seems from their messaging, Graham, that player development is something they're hoping from him quite a bit as well. Like he, he was mentioned some of those Aston Villa players that he's. Uh, developed so just hoping on that one Man, i suppose it's just th- this is the thing with charlotte is like does that mean we're excited for the way he can like take a player and get them to that next level he can take a 23 year old and really like fine-tune them to be able to perform in the way he needs or is that a coded way of saying you won't be getting money so we really hope you can develop some players because otherwise you're in for it, sir. I don't. Like, he yeah. could go either way. Find us our Jack Grealish. Come on, where is he? I mean, it would be it would be great if someone in Charlotte had the natural talent of, of Jack Grealish. Maybe there are a couple youngsters just lining up players and assessing their casts. Not big enough. <laughs> not big enough. Not big enough. What's an encyclopedia? Here's a map of, sh- here's a map of North Carolina. <laughs> Can you locate us? If it's no, you're in. The, the the thing that Dean Smith should be optimistic about is that he will get money. Right? Like Charlotte have have been willing to spend money. They spent money on Spaderski. They spent money on Capetti. Just I I keep banging the drum on on Zoran like. They've just missed on all of these. I mean, Swarovski's been a good player, but like really other than that, like they've missed and they've missed again and they've missed again and they've missed again. So there'll be money to spend. Like it's not going to be a problem on that front unless Tepper has decided that he's he's done and is going to spend it on beer instead. But like there, there's going to be money. It's just a matter of whether the players are actually good or not. Mm. Do remember, Joe, there's an alternate timeline where Frank Lampard is now in Charlotte yeah, as well. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And you know what? Honestly, I would say... Basically, all of the exact same things I said for Dean Smith, as I would say about Frank Lampard. Like, I just think that all of the effects of the new hire are going to be dwarfed by whether or not they have any good people to actually play soccer on the field. I'll take Dean Smith over Frank Lampard. Yeah, I, I'm doing the processing of the Joe Take moment right now. But the, the point Joe's making is yeah. that the, the determining factor is the club in the front office, right? Yep. The success or failure yep. of Dean Smith. Yep. It will not be on Dean Smith whether or not Charlotte FC. I mean, odds are there's it's possible there's some galaxy brain nonsense that happens, which would be very out of character. Yeah. But if you run out and play a boilerplate 4-2-3-1 with this current group of players, you might make the playoffs. You did last year. It's not impossible. There are some good players in this yeah. team. But like your odds of making the playoffs with Dean Smith or Frank Lampard don't really change a whole lot until there's like a new Miles Robinson big hit free agency signing or another really good DP that you add. Those are the things that are going to move the needle. 
somehow the Frank Lampard comparison has me feeling more optimistic about Dean Smith because I then wonder, like, if Dean Smith took over Chelsea instead of Frank Lampard, would he have gotten more points? Not would he be successful, not would he still be there, but would he have gotten more points? And the other thing I sort of kept reading, and Jack Grealish exemplifies this, is that his players seem to really enjoy him. Until they don't, obviously, as was the case with Norwich and Leicester, uh, and even Villa near the end. But it feels like a lot of players, Matty Cash, uh, uh, John McGinn, John McGinn's backside, all big fans of of (laughs) Dean Smith. And I think he does seem to get buy-in from players. Yeah. He seems to inspire that loyalty. If you can do that with Charlotte and get the buy-in and get everybody kind of pulling in the same direction, I do think he has more of an impact than I was initially inclined to give him credit for. He's likable. I don't know how much that matters in terms of football management, but he's those quotes, I'd imagine yeah. if you heard him say those quotes himself, they might not read as they read, if that yeah. makes any sense. I think they're, yeah. they're stating the obvious a bit, but he's, he's a, he's a likable guy and players play for him. Yeah, we shall see how many brick walls will be run through on his behalf in Charlotte. We shall find out. Thank you very much indeed, Joel, for that question. A quick break and a couple more after that. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan Graham and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the 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 uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you are connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Brian Donnelly has been in touch and says, I'm sure you all saw Joey Barton saying how he could put 100 out of 100 penalties past Mary Earps. Putting aside the cringiness of all that, yeah, I know. Uh, It did get me thinking of the basic arithmetic of goalkeeper heights. Most keepers in the Premier League are around 6'2 or 6'3, while Mary Earps is 5'8". To me, given that penalties are converted 75% to 80% against goalkeepers who are 6'3", being 5'8", would make a big difference no matter the other skill level. So my question is, says Brian, is it possible in today's game to be an effective Premier League keeper at 5'8"? And what preternatural skill would be required to do so? Is the minimum height to be an effective uh, Premier League goalkeeper in this circumstance? Now, I was trying to find Taylor short Premier League goalkeepers mm-hmm. throughout history. The one the, the the one I could find is actually Wimbledon's Premier League goalkeeper, Hans Seegers, who was five foot eleven. Um <laughs> not not too far off of six yeah. foot to be fair. But he was when you look back at his um footage of him, he was noticeably short. Another one I thought would be short was Kevin Pressman, who was Sheffield Wednesday's goalkeeper back of in the course. day. He was quite portly, um, <laughs> but he was actually over six foot so when I when I looked him up. But Hans Seegers, um who was a Premier yeah. League goalkeeper for many years and also Love the him. subject of a big Max fixing trial in which he let in too many goals. Oh dear! Didn't yeah. love him. Anywho, um, Taylor. did he use his height as 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 just because I'm sure that those goals went in? Yeah, oh, but, in, in uh, court he was like, but but, but, but I'm short. Sure. That was his his, his d- d- defense in court. Yeah. Peter uh, Benetti was five foot nine. Ryan Chelsea, legendary goalkeeper. He was the shortest. That not Premier League, of course. He yeah. was pre Premier League, but he was five foot nine. Fabian Barthez, five foot eleven. Uh, they were kind really? of the two shortest that could. That Peter Shilton six foot. I thought he, I thought he was bigger. But then again, he did get out jumped by Diego Maradona, who legitimately headed a ball past him. Sure, yeah. 
Anyway, I like that instead yeah. of answering the question, you all have just decided to list sort of short goalkeepers <laughs> who aren't actually Ryan's that just short. unleashing 1980s yeah. trauma upon himself yeah. once more. I so. think my point, I, I suppose my yeah. point with Hans Segers is he was 5'11", and he was an effective Premier League goalkeeper for many seasons. The yes. game has changed a lot in the past 20 years, of course, but yeah. um, that was the... Uh, case study I had. And you're going with somebody who's three inches taller. That, like, I, I, I do think, uh-huh, uh-huh, t- uh-huh. to answer the question, it's possible, but very, very unlikely is my answer. Uh, I think it's possible if you are very good with your feet and in distribution, and if you have really strong reflexes and agility, then you can sort of make up for it a little bit. Uh, and if a team is prioritizing possession and keeping possession and moving the ball quickly, then maybe that lack of height can be forgiven. Uh, But the shortest goalkeeper in the Premier League uh, that I saw is six foot. Most leagues, that's roughly the same. I think you'll get some 5'10 keepers. Uh, The obvious American example would be Nick Ramonda, who I think lists at 5'9". But I just think, I think it is really difficult with what you expect from a modern goalkeeper to be able to be like play with their feet, but also come off their line, uh, collect the ball, and especially in more physical leagues, they're going to have to deal with some some knocking around and commanding that box. And I think a shorter keeper can do it, but I think you are automatically up against it because scouts... We're talking about English scouts who, again, like won't sign people because they're wearing gloves. I think immediately clubs are going to see a 5'8 keeper and think, that's not a goalkeeper, they're too short. And whether or not that's fair, it's probably unfair, it is just the reality. I think clubs are going to immediately see... We bring in a 5'8 keeper, there's going to be skepticism from the fans right away, from maybe his teammates right away, and I think there are things stacked against a shorter goalkeeper that requires them to be supremely next level to be able to make that difference. Yeah, Taylor, I think you said agility or or something. You got into some of the skills there. You need ridiculous quickness and athleticism, right? If you don't have that same four to however many inches of, of extra reach with your wingspan that almost everybody else does, like you have to be smarter and faster to get to that spot because you have more ground to make up. You need awareness, you need all this stuff at like a NASCAR level, right? In terms of reaction and all that stuff. Turning left is is difficult as we as we all know. Um, one other thing that you need, I don't think this is a skill, but it's an opportunity. And Taylor, you kind of got to this as well. You need a coach or more likely a series of coaches who believe in you and who aren't immediately going to shunt you out to fullback because that is the most likely thing for a, a yeah. small player, maybe to central midfield or whatever it is, right? Winger. Like, they're going to move you because you're small. And as a 13-year-old, you're not towering over everybody else and making a bunch of cool saves and goal because you have the size. Like, you need coaches that give you that opportunity. And that stuff just doesn't happen. And, and to be honest, like, it probably shouldn't happen most of the time. If you're five foot eight, as a, as a men's soccer player, goal is almost certainly not the best spot for you. I thought it was funny we were talking about goalkeepers in the past that have been a little bit smaller. You go back through and look at like the best short goalkeepers of all time lists that pop up on the internet. And as I was scrolling through a couple of these lists, it's almost everybody from like the 1920s and 1930s. Like you get a Jorge Campos in there and he wasn't a real serious goalkeeper, but like he is a a legend in his own way and is certainly a recognizable figure in a lot of ways. You get a couple of others, but it's almost all 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s for some of these players. And I think there is a reason for that. Yeah, great. Is the oh, reason yeah. that people were shorter in that's, the twenties? And- that's yeah. the one. That's so. One. Interestingly, uh, Gigi Buffon had some something to say about this just just this week. So he pointed out that the height of a goal frame um, was dictated when men and people were much shorter in the eighteen hundreds. So he wants uh, the goals in men's football to be bigger, which is an interesting discussion point and not a not a point. Or not an argument that I would expect a goalkeeper to make, but nonetheless, he is uh, one who's near retirement and doesn't yeah. want people to break his records. Gigi <laughs> Buffon is still playing soccer. <laughs> no, I think he's just retired, which yeah. actually makes sense as to why he's making this exactly. argument now. Yeah. But he didn't make it, it ten years ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, great. Are we overlooking the the key factor here? Maybe it's not height. Maybe it's wingspan. What if you are five foot eight or nine and you've got like condor esque wingspan and you can reach very high? <laughs> so, an orangutan. Ryan is advocating for an orangutan <laughs> to go and goal. But long arms have got to be a factor, right? Uh, I think so, which is bad news for Jordan Pickford, I think, is the best short goalkeeper. He's six foot, by the way, yeah. so by not anyone normal, anyone's normal um, gauge, he's not short. But for a goalkeeper, he's quite short. I think he's the best short, shortish goalkeeper in the Premier League right now. He, as opposition fans remind him quite often in chance, doesn't have the short, the longest arms either. But I think his fundamentals are really solid. And that was the, the thing I kept on coming back to 
with for an answer to this question is just your fundamental your fundamentals fundamentals need to be really good so your your footwork your quick movement and i think jordan pickford is a good example of this um i think he moves his feet really quickly to make up for not having the biggest wingspan he's also a really good communicator and i just wonder if he has had to work on those things more because he doesn't have the most traditional of of goalkeeping frames and i wonder if he were to think about it has that has that actually helped him develop those other areas because there has been more of an onus on him to do that yes <laughs> thank you for that's my question, answer right? i don't know <laughs> well he's just right. so, he's just so little he has to ask people to get out of his way all the time so uh, he's like you know that's he how you learn to shout at better. them i get do think like anecdotally at an amateur level when there is a short goalkeeper in goal there is always a consensus of like everybody shoot shoot high we're gonna yeah. score goals and that almost always implodes and does not work because then yeah. people take low percentage chances i have to think at professional level that maybe gets dealt with pretty quickly by a manager. And, and I think that sort of like opportunity that like people will shoot in bad percentages because it's a, a short goalkeeper. I don't think that really plays out in the long run. So I, I think it's going to be tough, but I, lo- I look forward to a five, eight goalkeeper in the Premier League someday. It will be fascinating. Indeed with Gigi Buffon's double size goals as well. Chaos, chaos all around. This is just uh, the Brian- highest episode. That's all there is to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brian thank you very much indeed for your question there one last one uh, a couple of people sent this in Gritty for the Union also Andrew Wyatt and a couple of others talking about the story that came out last week Tony Blair wanting to move Wimbledon FC to a divided Ireland uh, instead they moved to Milton Keynes and became a divided club this is Gritty for the Union uh, speaking here uh, some of the least popular sport ownership decisions in America have been about moving teams away from their fan bases Ryan asked Gritty what are your thoughts about a Belfast Wimbledon alternate universe and what is the history of European clubs moving away from their roots uh, I'll start off by addressing the the Wimbledon and Ireland side of things here there was this, as I say a story last week that came out some state papers were released from the late 90s from 97 in which Tony Blair the Prime Minister at the time backed proposals for Wimbledon to move to Belfast in Northern Ireland a different country to England I will note uh, it was described as something that would be a quote significant breakthrough if Belfast had a soccer team playing in the English Premier League and it should uh, be able to build up the strong uh, cross-community support and provide positive unifying force in a divided city. So this was a year before the Good Friday Agreement between Ireland and the UK, which ended the Troubles. Um, If you want more history on the Troubles and Northern Ireland, Ireland conflict, uh, listen to any U2 song or do some research on that one, (laughs) I would suggest. Um, But this is before the Good Friday Agreement. So there's the implication here that a soccer team, Wimbledon, moving to Belfast would have been a tool in helping that conflict and helping cease that conflict, which is kind of wild. Um, Taylor. What I also don't understand is there were apparently proposals or discussions or some level of conversations about also moving them to Dublin. Yeah. So like, like I don't, they couldn't decide which between Belfast and Dublin, like that alone is already like, maybe that's not a great decision to be making fellas. (laughs) So this is the thing. Uh, Wimbledon at the time were playing at Selhurst Park, Crystal Palace's AFC Richmond's t- uh, stadium. Um, they were homeless, um, moved out of Wimbledon a-, a few years prior to that. So the owners, being opportunistic, were trying to look for somewhere else for the team to play. London has lots of teams. Wimbledon doesn't have very many fans. The opportunity being moved to a city that doesn't ha- ha- have as big a uh, soccer fandom in it, if you will, and, um, you know, make loads of money was the plan for the owners so there's relocation plans for a few different places one of which Taylor as you say was Dublin um there was that one really got far down the line much further than the Belfast plan as well there were there were proposals to have Wimbledon fans have their season tickets mm-hmm. paid for and flights paid for for the first couple of seasons in Dublin I mean yeah how uh, is that ever gonna work the Dublin thing raises its head every so often. Clyde Bank tried to do it. Yeah. A Scottish club tried to do it, moved to Dublin. I guess the idea being that there's untapped potential in Irish domestic football. Well, it's just yeah. completely unfeasible, partly because Dublin already has clubs, like historic clubs that people support. And as I'm sure we're going to talk about, in Europe and in Britain, the dynamic is a little bit different. You move a club to a new location, you don't get fans. Fans don't come with you and you don't get new fans. That is true, and uh, the former Wimbledon FC has found that out. Now, uh, Graham, you're quite right. The Irish FA vetoed the idea. The Premier League approved this idea, by the way. The Irish FA vetoed it in the end uh, because uh, they didn't want to threaten the League of Ireland, uh, quite rightly. So, and they, they're Clyde Bank, for, the, for similar reasons, they didn't allow to move there. But, I mean, I see the appeal from a Premier League product, from an unemotional perspective. Uh, an away game in Dublin, one of the funnest cities in Europe for Premier League fans, 
I can see the appeal for that, but whether it would actually have been successful or not, uh, I don't think so. So, Graham. Ryan, would you have been, I'm not saying you would have been Wimbledon, a Wimbledon Belfast fan, but would that have, would the pain have been less? Because obviously Milton Keynes is close enough that they're kind of in, they're on the horizon, right? You can mm-hmm. see, you almost see Milton Keynes from London. If they were just at, in the north of the UK, kind of out of sight, out of mind, would that have been easier as a Wimbledon fan or not really at all? And across uh, a channel, a, a body of water as well. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, and in a different country. I, I think perhaps because it would just feel a bit feel a bit more detached from it perhaps possibly and it yeah. would feel a bit more ridiculous and i think we'd have a bit more sympathy on our side perhaps oh we still do um but as you say graham the team did move to milton Keynes a few years after that which is about 60 miles from south london rather than an entire different country and this was done cynically for a property deal by the way there was a complex with a stadium with a hilton hotel with an ikea and an asda supermarket it's always so the real estate folks it's it basically was so david con of the guardian who is an excellent investigative journalist basically uncovered that the stadium was a trojan horse basically the team was a trojan horse to get by to bypass planning and construction rules so that's why this team effectively moved to milton Keynes. and milton Keynes and this consortium this product had tried to move other teams crystal palace they targeted barnet qpr uh luton luton almost moved and they're not very far from milton Keynes geographically actually uh but a number of teams were tried to move uh, to that area uh, reading a, a good bit about this, Ryan, obviously, you know much, 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 much more than I. Uh, but I didn't really know much about Milton Keynes, the area. So reading about that, I thought it was interesting because it's basically a city that's built because there's a planning commission report that yeah, basically says, like, yeah, like like London, we need spillover for London. We're going to build this sort of city. And that is why there's this idea that we'll get a football club there. It's a new city. It's a new opportunity. People can support this club. It can be a Phoenix club of sorts. And and I get where the idea comes from, and I get like why they were looking for at so many different clubs and trying to make something happen. It does just seem to be how disingenuous things were along the way. There's only like one like person who publicly lives in Milton Keynes who's supporting the bid, and they're hiding investors and people who are involved, and it ju- it just feels shady from the jump. Even if there is an understandable reason for why they're pursuing a club, it's to me it's less cynical than. Um, uh, Anthony Precourt just wanted to move the club from Columbus to Austin because he wanted to move to Austin. But at the same time, there is still a lot of cynicism to this decision and then obviously a lot of pain when it comes to Wimbledon fans. It it made sense that Milton Keynes wanted a club. Mm -hmm. Just create your own club. They had one. They had Milton Keynes City, Graham. They had a lower division. They had a Mm non-league team, which is where Ace of Women has started at the very bottom. So they they already had one. They just wanted to buy a league place, effectively, is what they were doing, uh, and killing a club in the process. And, yeah, Taylor, as you say, a new city, uh, relatively speaking, in English terms, uh, is Milton Keynes. But the problem with that is that lots of people are transplants who've moved there from outside. It's like a commuter belt for London, effectively. Mm -hmm. So everyone there is already a Tottenham or an Arsenal fan and in english soccer culture you tend not to switch your team so that's a challenge immediately for milton Keynes. and now it's been a few years you're going to get young kids who are born and that's been their team in their city when they from when they grew up so it may be a different situation but ultimately they called it they they predicted a football frenzy is the phrase they used when they hmm. proposed moving to milton Keynes. they proposed filling up a forty thousand city stadium every week they don't um you know they're in the same league as asu wimbledon who were started oh. when that happened and Ryan, we, if you don't mind me asking, just so I can do it instead of you, they, they are like way ahead of you all, though, in the table, right? <laughs> the look on Ryan's face right now, listener. <laughs> no, we're like in the same, like a couple of points apart, I think, at the moment. I believe you're, uh, was... a, I believe you're ahead of them by one place is the yeah, point that I'm getting you. at. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we have been a league above them previously in previous years go. as well. So that, that to me is ultimate proof that their project failed because we started a club from scratch and did better yep. than them. So, um, yeah, uh, well, I've made my feelings clear about that previously. But, yeah, um, my uh, one more thing, Taylor, sorry, is that this, I don't believe would ever happen today where we have social media because um, there'd be such a campaign from the soccer community at large that it wouldn't get pushed through. The day the decision was made by a uh, arbitration panel was a day that it was announced that yeah. David Brecken broke his metatarsal bone in his foot before the World Cup. News got buried. 
that wouldn't happen today in this age. And look, Millwall, they had they were threatened to move out of their stadium a couple of years ago, and social media just killed it oh, within, yeah. A, yeah. within a week. So this wouldn't happen. I, I don't mean, think it will ever happen in yeah. England again. Leeds can't change their badge without social yeah. media <laughs> making yeah. that switch around. So it happened, it was well, bad that timing. badge was so bad, though. <laughs> Did you ever see it? It was horrendous. Yeah. I loved it. I don't know what you're talking about. I've been, I've been laying in wait to drop this in because I think everybody knew it was coming. Uh, I think Save the Crew is a perfect example of that, oh. Ryan. Right? Uh-huh. Like, you, you think about all of the backlash that happened. I think, I mean, MLS, I don't even think it, right? MLS teams have moved before. European teams have moved before. Like the the quakes and all this stuff, this stuff has happened in the United States. It's happened in other sports in the United States. And when all that stuff happens with Anthony Precourt wanting to take that team and move them to Austin, they figured out a way by peer pressure and the fans standing up and saying, no, like we, we, we demand that our team be kept in Columbus. And they still have a team in Columbus, and it's it's a great story. And I think that mm. plays into what you're talking about, Ryan, of the power of of fans being able to speak and have platforms to actually voice their opinions and rally and create support that is is needed in those situations. Yeah, Which definitely. If if this had happened to the crew in 1999 or 2000, Joe, they would be in a different situation. I suggest as well for similar reasons. Definitely. Joe, when you talk about the commonality of this in American sports, I take issue with that as a lifelong fan of the Oakland, Los Angeles, Oakland, Las Vegas Raiders. I, I don't know mm. what you're talking about when mm. it comes to franchises moving. Uh, mm. No, I think you are dead on there. Ryan, my my like sub-question to this in reading about it, uh, I read very briefly that there was a, a discussion about merging. Uh, I believe it was Wimbledon, Crystal Palace, QPR, and or Charlton or some combination of those four to create a South London super club. How would mm. you have felt about that instead of moving to MK Dons? <laughs> yeah, That's three worse. three clubs within the same conurbation merging <laughs> and having their rival fans become one. Oh, yeah, amazing. That sounds great. Why haven't we done Get that? Get Melwall in there as well. I'm sure that'll be yeah. fine. <laughs> Charlton and Mill will love each other. Brilliant. Yeah, let's do that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, bad idea, I would say. And, and just to answer the other part of the question. I but if you had to choose it. one, South London Super Club or MK Dons existing, which would you choose? You have to choose one. And you can't have a Phoenix Club. Nope. There's no, the, the club's nope. not coming back nope. in another form. Nope. So anyway, to answer the rest of the question, um, European clubs generally don't move away from... I can't answer that. I'm still thinking about it. Sorry, Taylor. Well, while you're uh, thinking about it, I have more uh, burns for you. Um, So it's about 49 miles, I believe I'm correct in saying, from uh, Wimbledon to MK Dons, correct? I had 58, but go on. Okay. Well, I just felt it was important to note that I believe it is 47.4 miles from Casa Grande to Phoenix. So when you uh-huh. say that they're pretty much the same thing, I just want to point out, Ryan, that, like, what's the difference, man? <laughs> it's fine. It's no big deal. Get him. Hoisted by my own Get him, Taylor. <laughs> Congratulations, Taylor, you logic king. Well done. Um, just to close out this question, though, I think, yes, yeah, generally uh, true to say that European clubs generally don't move away from their roots. Um, so there's some yeah. uh, examples of lower division teams who are in financial trouble who sometimes merge. Uh, and and you know, historically, Arsenal moving from south to north London, um, Newton Heath moving to Trafford and coming becoming Manchester United, that kind of stuff, but vaguely still in the same metropolitan yeah. area, Graham. Yeah, in the modern age, I, I struggle to find kind of any real examples in, in European football. In Scotland, Clyde would be mentioned as a club that relocated, they were a Glasgow team and they essentially did a Wimbledon. They moved to Glasgow's equivalent of Milton Keynes, a new town called Cumbernauld on the outskirts of, of, of Glasgow. In 1967, Toulouse merged with Red Star, not Belgrade, but a, a, a second-tier team based in Paris. And then Red Star basically disappeared, um, which is quite the concept to just eat one of your rivals, I guess, uh, after this legislation was was put in place to stop relocation or mergers. So it hasn't happened in France since. In Spain, 2007, Theodad de Murcia, they relocated to Granada. They only lasted three seasons and then disappeared entirely. And then in German football, the only kind of modern example I could find was in 1954. Dynamo Dresden lost all their players to a new team called uh, Dynamo Berlin, who were set up by directors who broke away and wanted to start their own thing in a, in a bigger city, in the capital city. So uh, in a sense, the team re- relocated, but Dynamo Dresden and Dynamo Berlin both still exist. So it wasn't a, a pure relocation. It was kind of more of a splinter. I just think, as, as I've already said, relocation has such a stigma in European soccer, it, 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 it really happens. And we're now seeing that in MLS. I wonder if the days of relocation are over will we ever see a franchise in mls relocate i i can't really see it in the in the near future interesting and there might be some political stuff there as well dresden uh, a few years before that had some um indeed 
<laughs> topological changes, shall we say. Uh, some occur. difficult types. Yeah, indeed, some difficult types. All right, uh, that is our listener questions episode. Thank you very much indeed to Gritty and the others who asked that question at the end there. TotalSoccerShow.com slash questions if you have more for us. But in the meantime, Taylor Rockwell, um, well played on that last thing where you got me. You got me. <laughs> I mean, really what this was was a reminder that like as much as I tease Ryan about MK Dons, to, to have your club ripped away would be a truly traumatic and frustrating and infuriating and heartbreaking and depressing thing all rolled into one. So I shouldn't joke about it, but at the same time, it's very fun to tease Ryan Bailey. So it's a difficult line to walk. Ryan, thank you for hosting today. Tremendous as always. What a what a balance of, uh, <laughs> of a bit of... You, you have to walk there, Taylor. I appreciate that very much indeed. Graham Rutherford, thank you very much as always, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. I'm now wondering what South London United's name would be. Maybe AFC Richmond? Maybe wear orange shirts mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. play at Selhurst Park? There's a lot of Greyhound Bay. tracks in that area as well. Maybe they could use it as a mascot. We'll see. Yeah. yeah. Just an idea. Very good. Very good. Joe Lowry, thank you very much indeed. Phoenix, Arizona's Joe Lowry. There's no other. <sighs> I'm glad we got that whole Casa Grande business sorted. And I also am glad that we've been about an hour since we were talking about any Greek lev- letters in relation to <laughs> parental roles. That is a good day's work as far as Lambda. There we go. Lambda. Is that another I'm one? I'm for my dinner. <laughs> <laughs> in kebab form, I hope, Graham. Excellent. <laughs> uh, listener, thank you again for joining us on the feed. We'll be back very shortly. But for now, bye. Bye.